0: the Magic and Alchemy podcast where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host Kristen Lassenby. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Baloo. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Hi, Kristen. Happy Yule. Happy Winter Solstice. Also, happy birthday just passed yes (laughs) oh my gosh i know we're recording this before your birthday so it feels funny Mm -hmm. so i can't ask you how your birthday was but i'm excited next time about your solar return (laughs) thank you (laughs) um but yeah listeners these are the days before the winter solstice right before capricorn season um we're here in the in the belly of the shadows um Mm -hmm. mercury stationed retrograde this week just before we're recording this um always a time right Kristen? (laughs) yes yes
1: and i would love to know your thoughts on this retrograde if you have any
0: yeah, you know I do. <laughs> um, yeah, Mercury stationed retrograde uh, December 10th, uh, 11th, depending on where you are in the world, just earlier this week, earlier this month when you're listening to this, and it's going to stay that way until January 1st. Um, the shadow period does usually extend about two weeks after that, so you can kind of feel the effects or maybe be integrating the retrograde into our new year. but. When a planet is retrograde, if you're not familiar with that terminology, listeners, it's when the planet appears to be turning backwards through the sky. In in astrology, this kind of signifies that business is not as usual in that aspect of a chart around that planet during this phase. And you know, there's a lot of chatter on the internet about this. I want to say that there's nothing to be afraid of. Astrology is not to be afraid of, to strike fear into your hearts. But, um, I just really love paying attention to these, to these moments because I think that they're really potent portals, um, because they really gesture to us, um, when to expect the unexpected. So during a retrograde, you can consider slowing down wherever possible. I mean, I know this is such a wild time of the year. Um, but taking time to reflect, to reassess, to take that sacred pause. I think it's so important.
1: I love those suggestions. And, you know, just thinking about a retrograde planet during the height of winter definitely mm-hmm. feels like the star's way of saying slow down for those of us who need that reminder. <laughs> and I'm talking about myself. <laughs> I need that <laughs> reminder.
0: So thanks for those. Yeah. It, well, you're a Capricorn, so it makes sense. Mhm. Um yeah, I love astrology so much, but it always just really makes me laugh about how timely it is, and I still find myself just surprised by by how aligned the messages <laughs> always are, and it just makes me laugh a little bit too, like during the holiday season, um the cardinal earth sign of Capricorn is where this Mercury is retrograde, so it's just it makes me smile a little bit, something to look into. Yeah,
1: maybe scream a little bit too, perhaps shed a tear, <laughs> hopefully
0: not. <laughs> Always about it, take take a nap, <laughs> do what mm-hmm. you need to do, take care of yourselves.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So Kristen, what are we talking about for our final episode of 2023?
1: Well, today, inspired by some Yule-centric listener questions, we are following some wintry, holiday-themed threads. We are contemplating Christmas symbols, we're revisiting some winter superstitions, pagan practices, things and stories and thoughts and customs associated with Yule and the winter solstice. We're digging for their roots and their untold origins, and we're calling this adventure the Thirteen
0: Yarns of Yule. Mm. So, listeners, gather around this virtual hearth with us, this fire where we will weave together and share stories to carry us through the shortest days and longest nights. Now, let's begin.
1: (music) For our first yarn, I want to start with one of my favorites, the thread of a partially famous, sort of forgotten tale about a flying reindeer whose name isn't Rudolph, but Mother Deer.
0: Yay, Mother Deer,
1: love. I know you love it and I also know we've touched on her before in episode 46 winter magic but if you missed that conversation listeners surprise surprise female reindeer and caribou do not lose their horns during winter like we've been told like the movies suggest but the bucks do In an article titled, Doe, a Deer, a Female Reindeer, the Spirit of Winter Solstice and Mother Christmas, it reads, Long before Santa charioted his flying reindeer across our magical Christmas skies, it was a female reindeer who drew the sleigh of the sun goddess at winter solstice. That's because, unlike the male reindeer who sheds his antlers in winter, it is the larger and stronger Doe who retains her antlers and it is she who leads the herds in winter." This description is reminiscent of Saleh, the Lithuanian spinning goddess and keeper of light in the sun. Her story goes that on the winter solstice, she flies through the sky in a sleigh pulled by horned reindeer. Sole is crying, out of happiness, I hope, and sometimes she's alone, sometimes next to her sits a smith who's forged a golden cup to catch her tears. In this cup, her tears alchemized to amber, and she throws those amber bits down into our chimneys, gifts from the strengthening sun. There's also a Slavic winter goddess, Rosanitsa, She appears as a horn deity with reindeer antlers, and on her feast day, December 26, people make cookies in the shape of reindeer for good luck. And since male reindeer shed their antlers in autumn, and female reindeers keep their antlers until spring, calving season, Santa's sleigh is not pulled by a buck but a doe and most likely a pregnant reindeer, a mother deer.
0: Oh my gosh, I wrote about um, her and the Winter Goddesses article in the Tame Wild blog. I love that story about the cookies. It's so sweet.
1: Yes, I love that article too. Um, listeners, definitely check that out. If you haven't read it already, um, we'll link it in our show notes, but there are so many iconic Winter Goddesses to meet there. And While the reindeer pulling the seasonal sleigh and, you know, the deer that roam our forests are not exactly the same, uh, a reindeer is a type of deer, there is some interesting overlap when it comes to their association with this time of year. And so deer, uh, both doe and stag, make up my second yarn of Yule because these horned creatures are very present right now as well. Deer are friends to the archetypal wild women. They are aligned with goddesses like Artemis and the Kaliak, um and of course, witches. Rumored to hang out near fairy circles and other entrances to the other world, deer are sometimes called fairy cattle, since their milk keeps fairy children strong during winter. Mm, I love deer so much. I know you do. They're so magically sweet. And I know you know this, Kate, we've mentioned this before, but in some parts of Europe, the winter solstice is known as Mother's Night. And in Llewellyn's Yule book, it mentions a German legend that suggests, at midwinter, a forest goddess shapeshifts into a white doe, goes into a sacred cave, and gives birth to the sun. It reads, The deer is sacred to the winter solstice because of a belief that the stag carries the sun in his antlers. Symbolically, deer antlers resemble tree branches, and like tree branches, the antlers are shed and regrown each year in a real-life example of rebirth and rejuvenation. And I wrote an original short story for the Little Witch Books December newsletter with the archetypal dear mother making an appearance, so I'll link that tale in our notes for anyone interested, but some theorists slash dear scholars suggest that, like the Rudolph reindeer mix-up, the horn stag from folk stories, especially winter stories, is not actually a buck, but a doe because looking back at deer cults from you know ancient Siberia and Scotland and Ireland Norway among other places it is the female deer that is commonly depicted as their goddess and she's horned and she carries the sun and likely the entirety of the cosmos in her antlers sounds like my
0: uh, future career will have to be deer scholar it's too good goals (laughs) goals um and I love those those first two yarns Kristen um and I would like to weave one in now but I'd like to speak about the snowman for our third yarn today oh I'm excited for this one what did you uncover So, one of my favorite holiday movies, if you haven't seen it, listeners, David Bowie does a little introduction to the one that's free on YouTube, but it's the 1982 wordless film The Snowman, and it depicts a snowman coming to life and flying through the sky with a little boy to the haunting tune of walking in the air. Last week, I watched it for my annual tradition and began thinking about animism and the human drive to create snowmen. An article on Atlas Obscura detailed the history of the snowman titled, Winter's Effigies, The Deviant History of the Snowman, for anyone who wants to follow this thread to see more. It explains that Bob Eckstein, who wrote The History of the Snowman, found the earliest known depiction of a snowman in the Book of Hours from 1380 in the Netherlands. He goes on to describe that in the Middle Ages, building a snowman was a way for the community to deal with the oppression of winter, channeling frustration into these effigies. He describes another prominent snowman event where in 1511, over 100 snowmen were crafted in a public art installation called the Miracle of 1511. Eckstein wrote, Their snowmen embodied a dissatisfaction with the political climate, not to mention the six weeks of below freezing weather. The Belgians rendered their anxieties into tangible lifelike models, a defecating demon, a humiliated king, and women folk getting buggered six ways to Sunday. Besides your typically graphic and politically riled caricatures, the Belgian snowmen, Eckstein discovered, were often parodies of folklore figures such as mermaids, unicorns, and village idiots. End quote. Eckstein says that the snowman's place in the traditional Christmas canon of jolly holiday diversions, along with ice skating and horse-drawn sleighs, gained a higher status in the early Victorian era when Prince Albert thrust his penchant for German holiday fun onto England. Santa Claus and the snowman became ubiquitous icons who soared hand-in-hand over the land of commodified Christmas kitsch. End quote. That article is so fun. I love that. Commodified Christmas kitsch but snowmen seem to be symbols of both childlike wonder but also an outlet for the fear and frustration of the season a way to channel anger in zurich switzerland for example a giant snowman called the boog is plugged with firecrackers and detonated to the delight of a cheering crowd At the Rose Sunday Festival in Germany, a mayor would lead a parade through town beseeching the local children to behave obediently in order to earn the privilege of spring. The children would naturally comply and the townspeople would then incinerate a straw snowman. In my home state of Michigan, Lake Superior State University commandeered this tradition in the 70s with their own snowman burning day. And this yarn threads into another yarn, a fourth yarn of winter effigies. And this includes the Mary Lloyd, who we spoke about last year, and Marzana. We talked about Marzana in episode 19, Ostara. If you remember, listeners, Marzana is the Polish incarnation of the old Slavic goddess of winter, plague, and death. In medieval times, the rite involved making a Marzana effigy out of straw and other decorative items. Then, on the first day of spring, children would parade the effigy through the city, dunking her into water troughs. At dusk, the villagers would gather at the riverbank, setting the effigy ablaze and tossing it into the water. After the flames were thoroughly extinguished by the drowning, the tradition would be to remove the effigy from the water and parade it back through the village. Post-drowning Marzana is usually carried by young girls who walk from house to house dancing and singing, and in some instances, collecting donations for the church or for another charity. Today, children in primary school still participate in this creation of the Marzana doll, and these dolls are usually made of old clothes, rags, sticks, straws, and they range in size from puppets to life-sized dummies. Then on March 21st, Marzana is taken to the nearest riverbank or bridge, set ablaze, and thrown to her watery grave. And I think that it's so interesting how children play prominent roles in both the rituals of the Boog and of Marzana. There's also the Mary Lloyd, the effigy who we speak about in episode 100 about masks and ritual. The Mary Lloyd is a horse skull, worn by carolers, draped in a white sheet, and adorned in ribbons and bells. This mask and winter effigy is paraded through the neighborhoods near Yule or New Year's time, challenging participants in the ritual in battles of wit through poetry tied into this thread and practice of wassailing that I know that you're going to weave in in a bit here, Kristen. I love how giving a face to the winter season gives humans comfort, strikes fear into their heart, allows them to feel a bit of control or to deal with the passing of time, or gives right to mark time itself. So whether your winter effigies are playful or terrifying, part of a ritual or a way to pass the winter months, this yarn is definitely a favorite of mine.
1: Mm, That is so interesting, the overlap between the snowman um, and Marzana, Mm -hmm. the ritual. Um, well, next up is our fifth yarn of Yule, and I went really traditional because this is perhaps one of my favorite customs, bringing the outdoors indoors in the form of a Christmas tree. One of my
0: first jobs was working at a Christmas tree farm. I love this.
1: <laughs> Yes. Well, then you might already know um, some of these stories, but from the book, How Did It Begin? The Origin of Curious Customs and Superstitions, it reads, It is a fact that the Christmas tree stems from pagan customs. Its main features, green foliage and candles, were associated with the winter solstice when nature seemed dead, and green branches and trees were used in a magic rite to ensure the return of vegetation and the victory of light over darkness. Later, the tree was seen as the direct descendant of the world tree of Norse mythology, whose branches and roots joined together heaven, earth, and hell. The tree became the symbol of enduring and renewed life, and the green of its leaves the emblem of immortality. Egyptians used palm branches with twelve shoots as a sacred expression of the completion of the year and the triumph of life over death. At the time of Saturnalia, a Roman festival celebrated at the winter solstice in honor of Saturn, um, the god of vegetation and husbandry, people decorated their homes and temples with foliage on which they hung images of their gods. It was a season of goodwill towards all, schools were closed, no battles could be fought, punishment could not be inflicted on any criminal, and distinctions of rank and class were put aside. It was the carnival of antiquity when all joined in the mad pursuit of pleasure, end quote. And how the first modern Christmas tree, um, the one we know today, came into being is related to numerous legends and I just wanted to share a couple of those today. There is a Scandinavian story about the violent murder of two lovers and where their bodies fell a beautiful tree grew from the blood-soaked earth. Each year on the anniversary of their deaths tiny flames burst forth from the tree and you know they don't burn it but the lights are said to be impossible to extinguish. There is also a German tale that suggests the introduction of the Christmas tree had to do with St. Boniface, who arrived from England in 718 AD to convert pagans to Christianity. As Boniface was focused on ridding the area of heathen influence, he cut down a sacred oak which angered locals. So, to appease them, he planted a fir tree in its place and declared it to be a symbol of their new faith, and supposedly, this all took place on Christmas Eve. From the book How Did It Begin, another story. Martin Luther, the father of the German Reformation, had also been credited with the introduction of the modern Christmas tree— Returning home on a snowy Christmas Eve in 1517, he was deeply moved by the beauty of the glittering stars overhead. Wishing to describe this inspiring spectacle to his wife and children, he dug up a small fir tree and put it in his nursery. He then lit up its branches with candles just as the starlit trees outside had appeared to him on that cold winter night. Thus, at Christmas time, the tree’s lights came to illuminate every German home, and the evergreen of its branches symbolized the deathlessness of the spirit End quote. From Germany, this custom spread to other parts of the world by immigrants and sailors and explorers, and the first Christmas tree recorded in the US showed up in 1776 and in Great Britain around 1821. And Kate, I know we could talk winter plants for hours, but I wanted to mention just one more, one that I love and is really eye-catching and has become a wintertime staple in wreaths and rituals. So, I'm on to my next yarn, our sixth yarn here with the plant holly and the folk character by the same name. I chose holly because it's such a magical plant, recognizable to most even if we aren't plant people, and allegedly um, holly is one of the plants that Christianity could not rid from pagan Yuletide traditions. To the druids, holly was a plant of death and regeneration, sacred to underworld goddesses, witches made wands with hollywood, Um, and a medieval pagan carol suggests that holly is the most sacred of trees and says that it, quote, bears the crown. Holly is often confused with mistletoe, but if you do a quick little internet search, you can pretty easily see the differences in the leaves and berries, and according to the Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, author Barbara Walker says that the red holly berries represented the female blood-of-life color, whereas the white mistletoe berries were associated with the masculine elements, um, semen and sacrifice, and so So, in the divine marriage, sometimes celebrated at Yule, these plants were woven together. Christians from yesteryear claimed that bringing holly inside the home was for the heathens, and in doing so, you were renouncing the temples and the churches. But regardless, like I said, this tradition has yet to be eradicated. From the article, The Moon Before Yule… I wrote, a magical plant with poisonous red berries. In folklore, holly is associated with Mother Holly, also known as Frau Holly, Hulda, and in some cases, Perchta. In stories, Mother Holly lives in the other world, but those of us who seek the crone's wisdom can access a door to her kingdom at the bottom of wells. Look for the wells with creeping holly moving in and out of loose stones. Mother Holly is an honest grandmother, but she likes hard workers and people with kind hearts. Depending on how efficient we are, she will either gift us great riches or a kettle of pitch. Legend says that when it snows, Mother Holly is cleaning her house and shaking out her feather blankets. Traditionally, people made holly bouquets as festive, good luck talismans and holiday gifts, and they might also hang some holly above their front doors to deflect unwelcome visitors. I wrote a story time for Tamed Wild on their blog a couple of years ago, The Tale of Mother Holly, and I really love this story for many reasons it's full of symbolism if you're into that it's an initiatory tale which is so fun um but mother holly is just such an icon on her own she carries this kind grandmother meets baba yaga witch in the woods trickster persona since if you visit her you better be ready to do what mother holly says otherwise she's likely to curse you and I just think it's so interesting because I feel like we see that trickster energy in the literal holly plant as well it's really eye-catching with its bright red berries but it's also poisonous its leaves are this dark rich healthy green color but are marked with prickly points
0: are you a word witch It's Kate here, and if you're a book lover, a spellcaster of language, or a lover of the written word, Tamed Wild's digital subscription on Instagram has a book coven, and we're excited to invite you to join the circle. Each month, Danielle leads book discussions, and the Tamed Wild team shares reels about plant magic, astrology, and tarot. This digital subscription is a coven for the solo practitioner looking to join in with like-minded, earth-spirited souls through the portal of Instagram. To learn more, visit at tamedwild on Instagram and subscribe while on mobile. Okay, now back to the show. So Kristen, for our seventh yarn, I'm considering snow globes. This mm-hmm. is a newer yarn, not with so much um, explicit pagan or witchy roots per se, but I felt really compelled to include this as like a little modern day magic Um because be, just because if you've ever, you know, shaken a snow globe and watched the miniature snow sail through the waters towards the figurines below, you know the magic of this strange and kitschy Yule Bobble. Um, The snow globe was invented around the year 1900 in Vienna when a surgical instrument craftsman named Erwin Percy was asked for a light bulb to create bright light to help in surgery. Erwin thought that he could fix the problem by taking a shoemaker's lamp, which was a glass globe filled with water, that could amplify the light to the area for the surgery. However, this wasn't practical, and then he continued to experiment with the globe by putting metal flakes into it, watching them sink to the bottom. And this reminded Irwin of the beautiful falling snow that he knew and loved. So in a moment of inspiration, he filled the globe with semolina, and when he shook it, he saw the beauty of winter contained in his hands." And this is how the Snow Globe and the original Snow Globe factory was created. In this first snow globe, he put a figure of the basilica across from his friend's souvenir shop where he first sold the globes. And then during World War II, the snow globe became associated with Yule because he was told that U.S. troops would love the snow globes if there was something more familiar inside. So Erwin added in a Christmas tree, a Santa Claus, and a snowman, giving a little bit of comfort from home. Oh,
1: I love this story. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: So tender too, right?
1: <laughs> it is, yeah. All right, on to our eighth yarn. A villainous thread because, let's face it, winter is mischievous. It mm-hmm. can get a little spooky out there. And when it comes to winter villains, I mean, we could name so many. There is the Grinch, Krampus, the Bumble from 1964's Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Yes. Yes, who of course was no villain at all. Um, there's Gargamel, <laughs> the wizard from The Smurfs Christmas that I just watched the other day. Um, there's Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens A Christmas Carol. But I went with Gryla for this thread, um, who I know I've talked about before, but I just love her. This mountain witch. And listeners, if you don't know Gryla, she is a giantess from Icelandic folklore who lives in the mountains. She is the adopted mother of the 13 yule lads, 13 little tricksters who sneak into your house if you don't take the proper precautions or if your yule log goes out. And they will wreak havoc wherever they can. The Yule Lads aren't too bad themselves. To me, they seem like meddlesome fey folk or trolls known to steal your milk or bother your livestock, but the thing is, the only way you can get rid of them for good is by calling on their mother, Gryla, who will have to leave her cozy mountain cave and find your house. She's notoriously grumpy and hungry, known to eat people um mostly children who yeah (laughs) understandable um yeah she's known to eat people but it's mostly children who displease her um and same goes for her enormous familiar the yule cat Mm,
0: love the yule cat Mm -hmm. love a christmas villain same love that thread thanks Kristen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i think that it's interesting too because the snowman sometimes gets depicted as this yule villain like i was thinking about a couple horror movies that use the snowman that i came across and i think it's just Mm -hmm. so interesting the sort of like duality of winter but or of this yule time So, for our ninth yarn, I would like to talk about the bells of Christmas. Um, I always love that line. Well, I always love the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I have a lot of theories about Mary Hatch being a witch. Um, We can talk about that later. Yes. (laughs) But there's that moment when they say, like, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. And I, I just always... It's a little bit of magic of the season. Um, but bells are everywhere at this time of year. There's bells on Santa's sleigh. There's jingle bells on the jingle horse. There's jingle bell mm-hmm. rock. You know, so what's the, what's the deal with that? Um, obviously bells and Christianity and the church are very intertwined, but as with most things, there are pagan traditions and roots there stating that bells would drive away any evil spirits and would chime as a form of protection. So it's really no surprise that they became associated with Yule traditions during the longest night. If you're traveling by sleigh through a forest, you'd probably want all the help you can get against wayward spirits and ghostly haunts, especially with the parade of the Wild Hunt happening. Kristen, you discussed this thread even further, detailing all the exploits of the Wild Hunt in an introduction to our interview with Danica Boyce on episode 86. And I think you also have an article, right, on the Tamed Wild blog that people can explore? I want to say yes. Yeah. But... Ring ring some bells for protection. Um mm-hmm. take them caroline. You're gonna talk about that in a minute, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Um leading to our tenth yarn, the history of the story of the nutcracker, which is newer to me. Um its its roots come from an actually truly terrifying Yule Chris children's story. Um I danced in the Nutcracker growing up, and every time the company produced it, until I graduated high school, but I was the snow princess and the mouse queen, and many strange and surreal parts, but if you're not familiar with the ballet by Tchaikovsky, it's based on a children's story called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King by German author E.T.A. Hoffman. In the original story, according to an article on Salon, quote, Marie, a young girl, falls in love with a Nutcracker doll whom she only sees come alive when she falls asleep. In one gruesome battle between this Nutcracker prince and the seven-headed mouse king, Marie falls ostensibly into a fevered dream into a glass cabinet, cutting her arm open she hears stories of trickery deceit a rodent mother avenging her children's death and a character who must never fall asleep but of course does with disastrous consequences while she heals from her wound the mouse king brainwashes her in her sleep her family forbids her from speaking of her dreams anymore but when she vows to love even an ugly nutcracker he comes alive and she marries him the two of them leave her real life forever to live in the doll kingdom marie is a spectre of a character a girl who exists only to take care of her imagined prince a girl who vanishes disempowered and subjugated to a kingdom ruled by dolls End quote. i only had like a sliver of this in dancing the ballet all of those years um And I think it's so interesting that the ballet failed at opening and wasn't successful until many, many years later when George Balanchine resurrected the work in 1954 in New York City. And now it's just beloved by audiences everywhere.
1: Oh, I never knew the full story Mm -hmm. behind The Nutcracker. That's fascinating. On to our 11th yarn Inspired by the songs of the season, and specifically Christmas carols, I followed a thread that led me to the Anglo-Saxon tradition of wassailing, which many believe is the custom from which caroling evolved from. Wassail is a drink, usually a form of spiced cider or ale, served in a giant bowl and passed around among friends. In an article, Wessailing, by Ellen Castello, she explains that, At the beginning of each year, the lord of the manor would greet people with the toast, Ways Hail, meaning be well or be in good health, to which his followers would reply, Drink Hail or drink well. And so the New Year celebrations would start with a glass or two or perhaps even a drop more. It is likely that such celebrations were being enjoyed many years before Christianity began to spread throughout Britain from around 600 onwards." End quote. She goes on to say that with sailing celebrations generally take place on the 12th night, the 5th of January, however, the more traditional insist in celebrating it on, quote, Old Twelvey or the 17th of January. There are two distinct variations of wassailing. One involves groups of merrymakers going from one house to another, wassail bowl in hand, singing traditional songs, and generally spreading fun and good wishes all around. The other form of wassailing is generally practiced in the countryside, particularly in fruit-growing regions where the trees are being blessed. So, in addition to wassailing, generating good cheer among communities, this custom was also a ritual to bless the fruit trees, which I love, supporting them during the cold months, encouraging them to deliver a good bounty come next autumn. Wassailing is a custom still practiced today by this name. It is popular in the cider-producing areas of England, uh, like Somerset, Devon, and Sussex, among others. And in that same article I quoted from just moments ago, Castillo explains that although the celebrations vary from one area to the next, there is typically a wassail king and a wassail queen leading a group of revelers, farmers, land tenders, etc., in a noisy parade from one orchard to the next. They will gather around the biggest or most interesting tree, and the wassail queen will put a piece of cider-soaked toast atop its branches, along with a song, like this one. Apple tree, apple tree, we all come to wassail thee. Bear this year and next year to bloom and blow, hats full, caps full, three-cornered sacks fills. The revelers will then head over to the next orchard where Castello says they will sing, shout, bang pots and pans, and even fire shotguns. Basically, they will be as loud as they can possibly be in order to wake the sleeping tree spirits for their blessing, um, but also to scare off any evil entities that may be lurking in the branches
0: love for our 12th yarn the gingerbread house so i always had my suspicions that this was related to the story of hansel and gretel but wasn't really Mm -hmm. sure until now in the original fairy tale the house was crafted from bread and the roof from cake but over time the whole house was made from gingerbread inspiring this popular yule time tradition If you're not familiar with the story of Hansel and Gretel, it centers around two children who wander through the forest before facing death at the hands of an evil witch who resides in the gingerbread home. They eventually tricked the witch, saving themselves, but how is that for a festive Yule tradition?
1: Love it. And here we are at our final yarn, number 13. Lucky 13. Um, Yes, and for our final yarn, we are talking about the number 13. <laughs> um, listeners, we love this number. It's no surprise. It's associated with magic and witchcraft and the moon. Um, there are 13 moons this year, which is really exciting. It's associated with astrology and also winter. And although the 12 days of Christmas that we all know is a song, it's referencing the 11 days following Christmas, uh, many people suggest it's actually the 13 nights leading up to Yule or the winter solstice that were considered sacred. But either way, 12 and 13 show up a lot around this time of year. Traditionally, the 13 nights before Yule was a time for divination and keeping things tidy for otherworldly visitors and ghosts. People would tell stories around the fire, similar to the rituals of Samhain and harvest time, and they would divine messages from the crackling flames. And I know we didn't talk about Yule logs in this episode, but a Yule log is a seasonal decorated log that you would bless and then burn for good luck and protection. And this is commonly burned on the solstice or solstice eve, but traditionally uh, people burned their Yule logs for the 12 or 13 nights leading up to Yule. The number 13 might also have something to do with the Roman festival Saturnalia, uh, which I mentioned earlier that happens around this time. Saturnalia was said to have started mid-December and lasted for approximately two weeks, and while the number of days is highly debated and has changed over the years, there are plenty of sources that say Saturnalia lasted 12 or 13 days. And going back to... Our Gryla thread for just one moment. The 13 nights before Yule are believed to be when her darling Yule lads are the most active. So children in Iceland will put a shoe in their bedroom window for each of these 13 nights. And if they've been good, the Yule lads will leave them candy and small trinkets, but those with naughty behavior will receive a rotten potato or (laughs) something equally unsavory. And I feel like I could go on and on with the magic behind this number, and I don't know, Kate, I have a feeling it might receive its own episode in the future, um, but for now, all good things must come to an end.
0: Yes, Thank you for that final yarn, Kristen, and thank you listeners for weaving with us today, for gathering around the sacred fire to talk traditions, folktales, and modern magic, and thank you for being with us through 2023. Kristen and I love each and every one of you, these conversations, all the magic, and this witch wide web that we're all a part of. We can't wait for more adventures and stories in 2024. And until then, blessed be and you will tidings.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lisenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8 Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com.
0: Join us back here in two weeks to discuss the witch and the bitch. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it, so mote it be or something better. Until next time.